When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here is a poem I'd like to read in honor of Walt Whitman's 202nd birthday. Uh, This was written in 1890 when Whitman was celebrating a fellow um, 1819 birthday because Whitman was born in 1819, but so was Queen Victoria. So two years before he dies in 1892, he wrote this poem called For Queen Victoria's Birthday. Um, So I'd like to read it for you all. And it begins with a note. An American arbutus bunch to be put in a little vase on the royal breakfast table, May 24th, 1890. Lady, accept a birthday thought, happily an idle gift and token, right from the scented soil's May utterance here. Smelling of countless blessings, prayers, and old-time thanks. A bunch of white and pink arbutus, silent, spicy, shy, from Hudson's, Delaware's, or Potomac's woody banks. Walt Whitman. Happy birthday, Walt. Welcome to our happy birthday, Walt Whitman, a 202nd extravaganza episode. Um, I'm here with Adam and Erica, who, there you go, are um, going to help launch our birthday celebration. This is a really exciting episode because we are actually going to be amplifying the Walt Whitman initiative that I am now sitting on the board of and want to thank all the board members and Dr. Karen Carboner, who is uh, the president of the initiative, who gave us permission to release their first um, episode that they used for their robust, it's called the Robust American Love Series. And we have the YouTube of this talk uh, included in our description. So do go search out their YouTube channel. Uh, So there's a lot, Adam, that our listeners can do for Whitman's 202nd birthday. So my my question to someone like you is, you already, like, all of our conversations are already about Walt Whitman. So what are you, like, that's, that's just on a Tuesday. So what are you doing for the birthday? Well, when this episode comes out on May 29th, uh, and yes, I am breaking the fourth wall, um, I will be on the beach probably. So what am I doing for his birthday? Well, his birthday is actually May 31st. So it's on a a Monday. Um, I will actually probably be writing into my dissertation right now. So this is a nice accountability. I will be talking about um, Song of Myself, his first 1855 version. So if I 
want to drop some Whitman knowledge, Song of Myself doesn't get a title in 1855. It's just part of Leaves of Grass. So it is a would... song and it is of himself, but it is not <laughs> the song of himself. Anyway, there is no imagined Song of Myself because it's not even... Yeah, it, um, it also doesn't have um, numbers. All those, yeah, no all numbers. those, help, all those mm -hmm. helpful numbers in the, in the Penguin edition of Leaves of Grass. Oh yeah, there's no breaks. Um, no sections. And yeah, there the are multiple, yeah, there are multiple poems um, that then start to get titled um, into the later 1860s editions. So oh, actually, cool. we're going to include a link to the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass that everyone can find on the Whitman archives. So I'll be, um, exploring the erotic dimension of male bodies on May 31st, which I think is a very fitting way to celebrate uh, Walt Whitman. Is this in reference to your dissertation or in reference to going to the beach? Well, I'm sure, I'll see, I'm sure I'll see some male bodies on the beach, but on his actual birthday on May 31st, I'll be into my dissertating. Um, so there's that. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that we, like you said, Adam, have had a lot of Whitman discussions on the podcast already. So oh. on our website for the podcast, we have a link to previous episodes where you can have a whole marathon of Whitman-related content. Like remember, when, remember to smoke a few leaves of grass before the marathon starts. I'm not endorsing that, but <laughs> uh, that was a good pun. So I'm sure the wit the wit maniacs will really all the real fans are like you idiot you smoke buds buds of grass that's the sequel it didn't do as well oh gosh well we have our welcome to the ivory tower episode which um, contains discussions about my research into Whitman so we have that linked on our website. Um, Caitlin Shea from The Birthplace. Yeah, Those are great a, episodes to listen to to celebrate. Yep, and then we of course have um, Karen Carboner's episode about freed verse um, and her work with Whitman. So all oh, of and, that. Uh, what was it, plagiarism. Whitman, and plagiarism. Whitman, Whitman, yeah, she, Whitman the plagiarist. That yeah, was, she talks a little about the plagiarism. That was old hat for you, but it was revelatory for me, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah, so. Um, all of that is part of our happy birthday episode. Um, but what we're actually gonna have everyone listen to, our feature episode um, was done last summer for the Whitman Initiative. And it features Matt Miller, a Whitman scholar, and Lavelle Porter, who also is a Whitman scholar. And Lavelle Porter, um, wrote the article, Should Walt Whitman Be Hashtag Canceled? And it's an article that I take up in my Talking Back to Walt Whitman article that got released a month ago. So everything is really full circle here. And Lavelle Porter um, just wrote The Black Academic Life too, about being a um, Black American scholar in the academy and those kinds of obstacles. So I That's asked totally Lavelle, cool to come on in the summer to talk about that book. And he said he would be really ecstatic to come on 
He might not. I don't think he used the words ec- ecstatic. That was in my head. I'm ecstatic. <laughs> I'm. He was. He was happy to come on. Um, but I am really ecstatic for him to come on um, because I really highly value his research and really. I'm happy to be on the board with him because he's also on the board of the initiative. Um, so hi, Lavelle Porter. Hi, Matt Miller. Hi, oh. Karen. Thank you all for agreeing to let us use That's this nice. talk. Um, I still and- think everybody needs to watch the movie Fame because that is my very first introduction to Whitman. That so Erica- one line. Erica is talking about, I sing the body electric, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, oh, maybe we could have, I sing the body electric um, as a YouTube link from fame for our um, podcast release. I don't know. I think our um, intro to the episode is actually helping us plan our content for the birthday bash. So uh, this is also called a planning meeting uh, content release. So yeah, Erica found Whitman through fame, which is an incredible movie. Um, Adam, do you remember your first time when you learned about Walt Whitman? It was some like 733 English class. It was, it was, I don't know, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find a student who doesn't learn, oh, captain, my captain. Yeah. At some point in their school career. Especially in middle school, on the Northeast. Middle school, high school, et cetera. My, I mean, I, I consider my first encounter with Whitman to be that college class, the American Long Poem, where we read almost the entirety. I mean, we, we read Song of Myself and some other um, selections from Leaves of Grass in the context of the sort of genre that Whitman helped to create, which is the American Long Poem, Gwendolyn Brooks, Hart Crane. Uh, I don't think we covered Allen Ginsberg, which is a travesty, but hmm. live and learn. We can't cover them all, but um, I am such a fan of A Supermarket in California by Ginsberg. That was actually one of my first introductions to the queerness of Whitman. Hmm. Um, in high school, we read a supermarket in California in, in um, 11th grade. And seeing Whitman through that perspective um, was really revelatory um, with him poking, um, being one of the lonely old grubbers poking among the meat or the vegetables. He might be in the vegetable aisle um, in Ginsburg's verse. So, I actually want to tease our listeners (laughs) with that cruising imagery there um, that Adam and I actually get a lot into that kind of conversation about our first experiences with Whitman with Karen um, in the Freed Verse episode. So if you want to hear more about that, definitely go to that episode. Um, But Erica, thank you. She was not part of that discussion. So now we know Erica really found Whitman through fame. Um, yeah. I, did. I did find Whitman through fame. And, and then when I was about 11 or 12, I got my hands on a copy of Leaves of Grass, which 
I read until it fell apart over and over and over again. And there are still verses that I go back to uh, again that just things that I find comfort now. Yeah, and Erica actually released um, on the website, you'll see in our teaser, she released about how growing up on Long Island, she also had a certain nostalgic connection to uh, Walt Whitman. And um, Mary isn't part of, um, wasn't able to record right now because she is actually um, nannying. So there's, uh, we see Mary, but we don't actually um, have Mary's voice. But I can give a Mary anecdote about Whitman, which is um, I gifted Mary Leaves of Grass um, from a local South Jersey bookstore. So hopefully. Um, That's powerful. Yeah. So I'm sure Mary will have a lot to say in the coming months about Whitman. Um, and I can't wait to hear what she thinks of his erotic verse. Um, and on that note, we welcome you to the 202nd birthday extravaganza. Um, you know, wherever you are, are, Whitman, maybe it's in your Camden Harley Cemetery mausoleum. Uh, you are beaming and radiating um, with birthday wishes. Uh, don't worry, I won't be visiting the mausoleum with a birthday cake. I'm not, that, that, I'm, I'm not the, at that that's point. That's the S-tier hookup spot. Forget the Joyce Comer rest area on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> yeah, there is a Whitman rest stop, too, in Cherry Hill, in fact. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll all try to congregate there next year for the 203rd. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let's put that in the universe. Um, so... Without further ado, here is Walt Whitman, Racism and American Literature with Matt Miller and Lavelle Porter. And we hope you all enjoy the talk. Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Karen Carboner and I am president of the Walt Whitman Initiative. I'm very proud to introduce the inaugural presentation in our robust American Love speaker series it's entitled Walt Whitman, Racism and American Literature with Matt Miller and Lavelle Porter. As a nonprofit organization dedicated to cultural activism and representing the democratic open-armed ideals Whitman celebrates in his poetry, the Walt Whitman Initiative has actively engaged in many timely conversations, movements, and actions. The issue we're discussing tonight is surely one of the most important and timely conversations that we have participated in. We decided to offer this speaker series, note the word speaker, not lecture, to present timely public facing conversations on Whitman's life, work and legacy. You will hear conversations and enjoy presentations by teachers, poets, graduate students, artists, printers, neighborhood activists, you name it. They're not designed to be academic, but free, open, and informal uh, using your own input. That is, if you watch them live the, uh, on, two, on Thursday, Thursday evenings at, from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We invite your questions, and we intend to hold at least 15 minutes or so at the end of each of these conversations 
for Q&A. You can also watch these presentations later at the Walt Whitman Initiative's YouTube channel. Go to our website and see what's coming. I'm very honored to introduce two amazing people, one of whom I know very well and the other whom I wish to know better. So I'll start with Matt, who is an associate professor of English at Yeshiva University in Manhattan, where he teaches American literature and creative writing. His work on Whitman includes a very important book called Collage of Myself, Walt Whitman and the Making of Leaves of Grass. Uh, most Whitman scholars know this book very well, very important in my own work as well. And he just finished a book co-edited with Zach Turpin called Every Hour, Every Atom, a collection of Walt Whitman's early notebooks and fragments. So look out for that from the University of Iowa. And then there is Lavelle Porter, a writer and scholar of African-American literature. He is an assistant professor of English at the New York City College of Technology of CUNY. And he just published last year, The Blackademic Life, Academic Fiction, Higher Education, and the Black Intellectual. Talk about timely, check out that new publication from Lavelle. Uh, and he also penned this very important article called Should Walt Whitman Be Canceled? Black America Talks Back to the Good Gray Poet at 200. That was for JSTOR Daily. And that is the inspiration for this particular presentation today. I have a final word to offer. I'm saying thank you, of course, to Lavelle and to Matt, but I also must thank the people behind the scenes, which includes Tristan Pullen and our own Jesse Mirandi, who is the vice president of the Whitman Initiative and our tech guru. So without Jesse, none of this would happen. Please watch out for his work. He has done this incredible mobile-based experience called Vanishing Leaves, uh, which was actually the first digital dissertation at CUNY. Uh, and he will be talking about that next week. So please don't miss him. So thank you, Jesse. Thank you to our speakers. And I'm gonna hand it over now to Matt and Lavelle. Thanks again, guys. All right. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Um, Lavelle, thank you for agreeing to do this talk. I really appreciate it. We all do. Uh, I thought we might begin with your article. Okay. With, uh, um, I had an interesting uh, introduction to someone. Um, it was making the rounds quickly through Whitman Scholars. Everybody was talking about it. Um, but for some reason, it was introduced to me as um, the article, they described it by the title, Should Walt Whitman Be Canceled? And uh, I didn't get your name with it. So I had no idea that you had written it when I looked it up on JSTOR. Um, so I saw your name there and I was like, wow. Um, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, I was kind of biased toward it. Lavelle and I have known each other for about 11 years. Um, and so I thought I would take the opportunity of Lavelle's timely and important article to ask him to join me in this conversation. Um, so I guess I'll start with just a kind of question for you, Lavelle. Um, what's the reaction to the article been like? Um, how, how is it set with you? Yeah, uh, well, thanks also to, uh, to you for inviting me uh, to, to, to come and talk about this and uh, to Karen and Jesse and Tristan for helping to put it together. Um, I was actually kind of uh, surprised that it did circulate among so many women scholars. That was you know, in some ways very gratifying. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got it right. And, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, you said that 
the people that you knew were talking about it, I thought, okay, the, that must have hit on something here. Um, so it was, uh, I was, I've written pieces for JSTOR Daily before, and I was asked to uh, if I had an idea for a piece for National Poetry Month um, in April that year. And um, this had been kind of percolating in my mind for a while. I've uh, taught Whitman before. I knew about uh, Timothy McNair's uh, protests of uh, singing um, the Whitman song. And so I, I, I just been kind of taking notes about this uh, for a while. Um, I also saw the book Whitman Noir, um, which was really, you know, the catalyst for all this. They started out as a kind of review of that book. Um, but, you know, when I was asked to do it or to come up with an idea, you know, I just thought, you know, it's Whitman 200. I'd kind of been thinking about maybe I could write something for Whitman 200. Um, and, um, and it all came together from there. So, so yeah, it's been interesting to see the reactions to it. Um, you know, with that title <laughs> and cancel in the title, that gets people's attention, obviously. Um, I'm not really a clickbait writer, uh, but this was like my attempt to try to write some clickbait. And uh, it definitely worked in, you know, all kinds of ways that were unexpected and some that were expected. You know, some people just reacted to the title. That's how clickbait works, you know? <laughs> so you get a lot of clicks from people who just want to rant about the title. Yeah. Um, but also people seem to really read and engage with it too. And so I got some interesting feedback, kind of more feedback than I usually get from things that I write. So. There was a point at which I just kind of like didn't uh, didn't follow <laughs> some of those conversations. I just like I don't want to know what people are saying at this point. They're, you know, they're reading it, so that's fine with me. So you you explicitly chose the cancel framework and titling to get it to get eyeballs on the article. Yeah, I mean it was irrelevant. You know, there there have been conversations. And you know, one of the things we kind of talked about before this was would I have written it in you know right now in this moment in the same way. I'm not sure I would have because that word has become so much more obnoxious in, in just a few months since then. Um, I probably would have like, I don't want to write anything. I don't want to hear the word cancel or woke ever again in my life. If I, if I did that, I'd be fine. Uh, yeah. But at the time, yeah, it seemed like a good idea to, to kind of, you know, to hook people in. But also, you know, that was there was some substance behind that, I hope. And that oh, was, yeah. And it totally worked. You hooked people in. And I thought the way you contextualized it in the article was, um, was you know, really well done and helpful. Um, how it's used sort of half comically to indicate, uh, you know, an attitude in some ways. Um, I mean, it's about negotiation of the present, but it's also about what in particular younger people, you know, are gonna think about people that like older, like myself, um, artists that we, were, we, we respect, so. Yeah. I like how you put it in context, and I think it helps. Some people that first started hearing that word, I don't think people got that it was meant harshly, ironically. Mm -hmm. A lot of people took it more literally. Yeah. Uh, and you comment on that. I thought that was one of the important. Yeah. I read some of the. I do read some of the comments, <laughs> and it was like you know, uh, you know, these people they want to cancel everybody, and these people are so sensitive, and if you cancel Walt Whitman, I'll cancel you, and you know those sorts of <laughs> those oh, sorts of comments go around there. Oh, wow. Because I thought it was really clear to me in your article that this was coming from a position of conflicted feelings. You know, this wasn't a like attempt to dismiss Whitman. Mm -hmm. There's there's an undercurrent of respect for his work, I thought, that animated it along with uh, healthy skepticism. And uh, so I'm surprised that people um, didn't see that this was a article, at least partly written out of love. They didn't want to see it. You know, some people just react to, that's why I said in the article that, you know, I don't really think cancel culture is a thing. And uh, some people even reacted to that. Like this person says that cancel culture isn't real. And that's, that's you know, whatever. Oh, so you're getting it from both sides. Like, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So I understand that one of the things that influenced you in that article was Marcos Gonzalez's essay, Recognizing the Enduring Whiteness of Jane Austen. Could you uh, talk a bit about how that influ influenced you? Well, it was the other way around. Actually, uh, Marcos cited my essay. Um, oh, and, and his, gotcha. Yeah, that piece came later. Uh, and I think it was, a, in some ways, an even more thorough and better treatment of the same concept uh, through reading Jane Austen. Um, and Marcos is also a CUNY Graduate Center alum. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a, a great piece about what it means to read this work from the perspective, uh, particularly as, as writers and scholars of color. Uh, you know, we want our students to engage with this work. The idea is, you know, these, are, these writers are universal and therefore we want all our students to read them. But uh, we also have to think, what does it mean for, you know, as a Mexican American, as he is to read uh, Jane Austen? Um, what does it mean for our black students uh, to encounter Whitman and see, uh, some of those comments um, that Timothy McNair saw, you know, um, I think it's important to contextualize uh, these writers for those students to help them understand um, the, comp the complexity of these issues that they were dealing with in their time, you know, and Whitman is just a perfect uh, symbol of that um, because he's someone, and as I said in the article, you know, partly what makes this so vexing is that he's our poet of democracy. You know, he was somebody who was supposed to be the most inclusive writer, and yet you see in his, uh, you know, private writings, um, there's, there's comments that, were, that are very just outright racist. Oh, yeah. you know, and it doesn't quite square with what you see in uh, the body electric where he's writing that beautiful section about you know, seeing slave auction and identifying with the enslaved on the auction block. Yeah, definitely, I, I, I know what you mean. There's, there was one quote in particular from Gonzalez's essay that you, you brought up that there was a part of it that I wanted to share with our audience because I thought it was so well put. Do you want to, you want me to read it or do you want to share it? Um, yeah, I can read that. Right, great. <laughs> I want to read Austin. I want to read as many dead white writers as I can. I have a voracious appetite to read literature from every historical period and place on this planet, but I must read them from this body. This body built of colonization, this body built from the pillaging and massacring and dispossessing of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, this body hundreds of years in the making, which I now read from. Those like and unlike me are there in those pages. Yeah, and so that's it. I mean, I, I, I can only read this from my perspective and I think we want students to read this from the perspective um, and not just from some sort of false notion of um, colorblindness or universality. Um, so I, I thought that was a really interesting engagement with uh, the sort of canonical right writers and how our uh, students of color encounter that, that kind of work. It's, it was a really powerful statement to me too, the encompassing nature of it um, struck me and it made me wonder you know, what it would mean to do that, to read from that position and how that would be different from how the ways that, for example, I read, I've read Whitman before and um, you know, how exactly does that impact us? Um, it, one thing it does for me is it, it sensitizes me to uh, the way that Whitman uses power mm -hmm. in his descriptions and the way he takes power through his descriptions. Sometimes he gives it back or tries to. Um, and it also makes me think about the larger project that like romantic literature was involved with in trying to envision this like, like positive future for humanity, this like utopian future, yeah. especially the very young Whitman, it seems to me was very much caught up with that, that idea that, that there could be this better world out there. And in his early, earlier years, I say early, he was, still in his 30s, he wasn't that young. Uh, up until he was 
you know, when he was written, writing Leaves of Grass when he was 34, 35, uh, you know, he, he seemed to have a somewhat more inclusive vision of humanity that could encompass, um, you know, black people, um, slaves and former slaves. Uh, but th that seems to fade um, and, 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 and grow um, and spoil and, and become more increasingly racist after the Civil War. Um, so, I, you know, I guess one question I have is what does it mean to, to read literature in that way? How does the way that Gonzalez suggests, how does that affect our readings? Um, and then also, you know, how does Whitman fit in specifically to that? Well, I kind of wanted to throw that back to you as someone who's studied his notebooks, um, because we uh, viewed Ed Bolsom's talk uh, last, I guess it was in July, um, on the subject. And he talked a little bit about how, you know, there's, there was the Whitman the poet, and then, uh, then there's Whitman himself, uh, who's thinking about race didn't always match the inclusivity of the, of the poetry. Um, what, is, what about his notebooks? What have you learned from um, reading his notebooks that you think is applicable here? Well, I, you know, I, I did just reread all of his pre-Civil War notebooks with the Whitman scholar Zachary Turpin for the book that Karen mentioned in the introduction. And, you know, the Whitman that comes through in those notebooks is someone that you can respect and someone that, that you can usually um, kind of cheer on in his views. Um, first of all, race doesn't come up as much as it does in his Reconstruction era writing. When it does, it's often in the context of his erotic descriptions of men's bodies. Yeah. It seems to be included in a kind of uh, queer utopian poetics is why I brought up the idea of utopia earlier. Right now I'm reading this book by Mark Doty called What is the Grass? Mm -hmm. And Doty talks at length about um, this kind of like queer utopian vision which he associates explicitly with uh, cruising, gay male sexual activity and this he sees Whitman as finding a kind of liberatory vision in his liberated sexual attitudes and that those two things are intrinsically tied together. And when his erotic fascination fades, so too does his ability to include people in what Doty calls the American family. Mm. Um, so I think that there's a kind of, there's, it's troubling too, right? I mean, this is a guy, I mean, on the one hand, Whitman, you know, as a queer writer was oppressed himself and couldn't, you know, he was, he lived his life in the closet and, and, but on the other hand, you know, he was looking at these people that were, you know, when he visited the South, he saw a slave auction, probably more than one, you know, people completely at the mercy of the auctioneer and, and the gaze of people like Whitman yeah. standing there appraising, you know, that black body. And that's where poems like I Sing the Body Electric comes from. And, the Whitman I love and respect is the Whitman that can transform that into an occasion for celebration of humanity in general and for arguing that we all share the same uh, kind of common right to, to live and a, a right to, to be free of violence and oppression. Yeah. Uh, but sadly, you know, that Whitman seems to increasingly kind of fade away after the Civil War. And it's a question that's perplexed many Whitman scholars. Ed tried to address it, Ed Folsom during that talk and others have addressed it, but I don't think ever, anyone's ever done a completely satisfying job of it. I, it's, to me, it's still a troubling, vexing question that um, you know, I, I, I struggle with. And that, that's something I really tried to address in that article too, is um, the, the importance of recognizing Whitman's queerness. Uh, he, in some ways, is not just another dead, dead white male writer. You know, um, he's, I think, with some scholars been included in the canon 
um, but we need to really recover uh, how that inclusion happened and how long it took. Um, yeah. Because at the time he wasn't really considered, uh, you know, legitimate writer. I mean, because of the style of his poetry, um, because of the the things that are in the poems themselves. You know, he was a degenerate, uh, using the language of that time, and um, is not somebody who really would be considered, uh, you know, included in the American ideal of masculinity. You know, so I, I think in some ways to read him, you know, we need to recover that. Uh, don't just really talk about him as this this great writer. Uh, but as someone who was really a, a kind of dissident in his in his time, uh, definitely a dissident in his time, his writing, you know, got him fired. <laughs> um, you know, people thought the poetry was obscene, um, and he was seen as an icon uh, for you know uh, queer intellectuals uh, who read his work and really saw uh, the expression of of sexuality um, that's in it. Yeah, exactly, and and it comp it complicates for me the the question of how we treat his racist statements, which are explicitly racist um you know on the one hand i can understand why some people would want to reject that and i don't hold that against anyone um yeah if anybody chooses not to read or teach whitman um that's i get it you know i get it um for me personally he's he, he still speaks to me powerfully and has proven as a useful teaching tool to bring up all kinds of things including race and some of the best conversations I've had in classes have been about poems like I Sing the Body Electric. So I reserve the right to continue to teach him and I continue to read him with pleasure and I'm not embarrassed by that. Yeah. Um, but I can't say that I don't feel uncomfortable when I read those statements. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a temptation to kind of separate the poetry from the prose, especially the journalism and maybe and the unpublished writing that some of these statements comes from. Um, that's another tricky issue. I struggle with that as well. Should we separate the man from the poem? Is that is that being too is that being too generous? I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't think with Whitman, definitely not. I mean, his poetry resists that <laughs> that the very kind of separation of the body from the touches, this book touches a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think his his position as his class status, I think, is important here too. I mean, he was someone who was a working class uh, writer at, at a time when you know. Nobody really read those kinds of writers. Um, he self-published, you know, this book. He didn't really, he wasn't part of the literary establishment. Um, and, um, you know, he was racist as many people were in his time. Um, and white supremacy was really the, the default um, among white people. And so he was very much, you know, a man of his times. That was kind of one of the comebacks that, you know, we talked about in the, in the Ed Folsom's talk, you know, um, is this just this, a case of someone being, you know, a person of their times and how can we expect people to be uh, different from the, the environment in which they live? Um, but I think it's, you know, as someone who is uh, himself, like I said, not really a part of the, a, a sort of elite as a writer, that's an interesting way of looking at him. I mean, he was really a working class poet who built this work on his own, you know, to the point of actually printing it, you know, physically on his own. For sure, I mean, among, what you might call I don't know, canonical poets, like central canonical poets from that kind of old school perspective, right? Whitman, as far as I know, was the first to come from a working class background, at least among Anglophone writers. Yeah. Um, the British romantics, not a single one of the better known British romantics came from a lower middle class. As some, some have argued he wasn't really working class, but more of a kind of uh, lower, he was his fa his father was kind of a real estate speculator, and they would buy properties, fix them up, 
they, they, he was like had carpentry skills and they would sell them. So yeah, they worked and they were working. Certainly they were working class from a Marxist point of view. Yeah. Um, and and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm not, you, you, go, you go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that that, um, you know, that also is uh, important context for his racist comments. I mean, he was someone who was not, um, he was not a slaveholder. You know, I, I contrast him with you know, Thomas Jefferson, who also teach in American literature. Um, and in some ways, I'm, you know, much harsher on, on Jefferson because he was someone who actually held human beings as his property, um, who, you know, sexually assaulted the women that he owned. There was no consent involved in that. Uh, so there's, uh, I, in some ways, I'm a little, I'll, I'll give Whitman a little more leeway than I do some of the other dead white men that I teach in my classes, you know. And I think that, you know, if you, if you do read the poems without that prose, there are plenty of occasions to celebrate Whitman's racial attitude in, in, in the poetry, at least. I know that in his time, from, from reading the reviews of, of the first and second editions, especially of Lisa Grass, when Southern literary journals reviewed his book, they immediately identified Whitman as an abolitionist, and he was attacked consistently throughout his life by Southern literati for his pro-slave, pro-Black views. Um, they had no doubt in their mind that he was their enemy. Yeah. Um, so it, from that point of view, at least, it's a bit ironic that Whitman has now come to be emblematic of the dead white male, um, oppressive dead white male culture, at least in some people's minds. Um, it certainly is a reversal of how he was seen in the eight, late 1850s. And his, you know, adoration of uh, Lincoln, I think was, was part of that, right? I mean, he was someone who very much was supportive of the, the union. Yeah. And, um, and he and Lincoln, I think are very similar. You know, there's a very similar conversation to be had about Abraham Lincoln. You know, there's the way that Lincoln historically became the great emancipator Right. But then we also know that Lincoln didn't necessarily see black people as equals um, and didn't really expect that black people would be fully integrated into the American body politic. You know, so he's uh, just like his redeemer president, you know, sure. there's very, a lot of similarities between them. And there was a lot of that going around, a lot of that going around. I mean, um, really, I can't think of a single white author that successfully envisioned a biracial America in the Reconstruction era. It's a point that. Ed Folsom brought up, brought up during his talk that uh, how long did we wait? Are we still waiting for a white author to envision a successful biracial America in a work of fiction? We have, yeah, you know, I don't think we really need that. I mean, that's why I focused on, uh, I mean, we do. I mean, obviously I want people to be, you know, to persuade, but um, I really wanted to focus on the, the black intellectuals who saw Whitman too, and to see their perspective. You know, that's why I talked about Langston Hughes um, and uh, Natasha Treadway and Joseph Kimiaka, you know. The white people needed is what I meant, I guess. Yeah. More than, yeah. It's, it's, so we talked a little bit about that. Um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but you, I, I asked you about who, who you think among African-American authors um, has had that kind of utopian vision and how it differs from Whitman's and other white writers' utopian visions. And I think you brought up Sam Delaney, um, as a, as a great example of a science fiction writer who has some similarities in that there, he has a kind of his own kind of queer utopia? Yeah, he's, you know, it, it, utopia is a interesting term in Delaney's work because he's not, he's in some ways anti-utopian as well, um, or heterotopia as the, the word that he uses in um, his, his book Triton. 
um, you know, he's another great, you know, bearded queer New York writer. Um, I was reading, um, you know, my other work is on uh, Delaney. Um, been a big fan of his and, um, you know, done some scholarship on his work. And um, I really think about Times Square Red, Times Square Blue and the idea of contact. Uh, when I read Whitman, that's what really resonated with me. Like, oh, he's talking about some of the similar, uh, coming from a simple perspective as Delaney does when uh, in Times Square, Times Square Blue, he talks about cities and the importance of contact that happens in cities versus networking, you know, which is a more formalized kind of interaction. Um, what really makes cities dynamic is the contact that you have with people across uh, races and ethnicities and classes. Um, and Whitman's idea of the, the stranger you know, and the encounter with strangers is something that really, I think uh, both of those writers uh, have in common. That makes a lot of sense. And that also might be a piece in the puzzle of helping to explain how his views changed. You know, when he moves away from New York, um, first mm -hmm. to DC and the horrors that he saw there in the Civil War hospitals, and then, um, you know, later uh, eventually to Camden, he, he didn't have that dense crush of people and that like conflux of bodies um, to inspire him. Um, I wonder how much the loss of that affected his, his way of looking at it. I know you, um, one of the ways that you've brushed up against Whitman in your daily life is when you were giving tour guide um, tours to people and, and you would give kind of, as I understand it, like literary tours of New York and Manhattan. Yeah. And that was, was that kind of how you first got into Whitman? Yeah, I came to women kind of late. That was, you know, something I mentioned when we were talking before. Um, you know, I uh, really was, it was the American Experience documentary that introduced me to Whitman. So that was 2008. And it happened to like hit me at the right time because I was also studying as a tour guide. And so, you know, reading about this uh, New Yorker who celebrated the, the dynamism of city life in the 19th century, which, you know, many people saw something foreboding and this is the wrong way for humanity to go. Um, he really embraced it. So um, working as a tour guide, yeah, I, as I was learning about New York City history, I also uh, began to learn about Whitman. And I've um, incorporated some of those sites into my classes. Uh, we're in downtown Brooklyn at, at City Tech. So uh, I've taken my students over to Walt Whitman Park. Uh, we've gone over to the uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park and the Fulton Ferry Landing, Red Cross and Brooklyn Ferry while standing right there. Um, we've been to Fort Greene and, you know, Fort Greene Park, where the centenarian story takes place. And um, there's his, of course, his house on Ryerson Street, uh, which there's now some conversation about uh, making that a historic site. So the, uh, the uh, geography of, of New York uh, was something that drew me into Whitman, too. And I'm really excited to see uh, Jesse's talk, um, because I, I saw when his dissertation uh, came out and, and some of the coverage that got. And so I'm really excited to, to hear more about that, too. Jesse and Karen uh, are giving a talk in a week on Walt Whitman's New York and the urban context of Whitman's poems. That's what Lavelle was just uh, referring to just a second ago. Um, so yeah, another thing I wanted to talk to you about and kind of getting back to that idea of Whitman's queer utopia and how that um, enabled him to have a, a less racist attitude and a more liberating attitude toward people. I was, Going through, I went through the uh, the doc, the word doc version of the recent book of notebooks that came out, and I did word searches um, for words like slave, black, race, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing that struck me was how seldom it comes up. Um, I counted about four times, 
Um, and of those times, it's almost always in the context of, of descriptions of bodies. Um, it's not about politics. It's not about finding a place for black people after slavery. It's not even about being worried about the Civil War and what it's going to do to the America that Whitman loved. It's about um, aesthetic appreciation of black bodies. And on the one hand, it's, I guess, it's, I'm, I have, again, mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, it's, it's encouraging to see him talk in a way that suggests feelings of equality and compassion. But on the other hand, it's kind of squirmy stuff, the way he subjects these people to his gaze. And there's a kind of privilege there, too, that it's, it's, it's tricky kind of privilege because he's also oppressed, as you pointed out, you know, being... I don't, I don't know what to make of it exactly. It makes me... It's dehumanizing. <laughs> it's, that's dehumanizing for sure. Yeah. Uh, especially yeah. given, you know, again, the, the, the political status of Black people at that time, you know. Um, but it's complicated. I mean, we understand race through embodiment and sexuality. That's something that I get a lot from, from Delaney's work, right? That these sexual differences are one of the ways in which we understand uh, racial difference. Um, and they're closely, closely related. Uh, and so I think it, as a as a teacher, you know, you can sort of draw that out uh, to your students to, you know, and there's plenty of scholarship that covers uh, that topic of the relationship between race and sexuality and the way um, black people are viewed as sexually deviant and differently gendered. Uh, and I think Walt Whitman is kind of participating in that, um, yeah. it, you know, based on what you, you said about his comments in the, in the journals. I, you know, that's something I hadn't thought about it from quite that angle. That's really interesting to me. So maybe Whitman felt a sense of fellow feeling with the fact that his desires were also unsanctioned. They were, you know, he could they couldn't see the light of day and he couldn't, he, he had no rights in terms of, you know, what he wanted from life. He just had to deal with it. And so maybe that, maybe that's a source of his fellow feeling in his early years somewhat. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, clearly it's, it's his desire. I mean, you know, just thinking about it in terms of just, just naked desire, you know, he saw uh, those folks as desirable. Um, but our, you know, desires happen within historical context. And so it's not just a, an innocent thing, oh, he just happened to be attracted to black people. Um, but what does that mean for, like I said, a white man to be talking about uh, black people's bodies in this way when black people themselves are completely disenfranchised? Um, there's a there's a, a certain kind of a condescension and a, a power difference there that has to be acknowledged. And that, you know, that power difference, it occurs to me that that power difference continued through his Civil War years, too, where for all the good he did as a Civil War caretaker and nurse-like figure in those hospitals, again, he was the one in complete control. These were often dying people, you know, dying men in, in their hospital beds. And while he was playing the caretaker role and he did some good, again, it's him in the position of power. Yeah. Um, that's not something I've really thought about too much. It's interesting. Um, so I've been reading your new, your book, The Black Academic Life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that strikes me about it that uh, is kind of drawing me in and um, making me think a lot more about the subject is the way you talk about just how long the, the white um, prejudice has been embedded in Black education, how from the very beginning, the earliest moments of Black education in the United States, it's always been about control and about like, you know, approving certain feelings as acceptable within society, maintaining the borders of what's acceptable. Um, 
I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and if you see any of that kind of attitude towards education, because that's also something Whitman wrote about a lot was, um, was education and how America could change if people like weren't so tied to Christian views and so on. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could connect that to Whitman at all. Well, I could, you know, draw on one of his contemporaries, Frederick Douglass, um, and I quote from Frederick Douglass's narrative there. And, uh, you know, Douglass really articulated the relationship between knowledge and power when he told that anecdote about his enslaver's uh, mistress or, or wife wanting to teach him how to read. And then, you know, the slaveholder said, you know, you can't teach him how to read. If you teach him how to read, he'll, he'll forever, you know, be uh, out of our control. Um, and so there's a real relationship between, you know, literacy and power and knowledge and power. Um, and Douglas drew that out and other black writers um, also paid attention to that as well. Uh, that book tries to trace a history of um, black education and higher education specifically and attitudes towards higher education among black people and among white people too. And many people saw, you know, the higher education of black people as a kind of social danger. Um, even, you know, concern trolling black people about it as, as a danger to themselves. Like, you know, if you become educated like this, you're not going to be able to be employed ever again because nobody's going to want to hire someone who's uppity um, and thinks too much of himself. Uh, so, you know, that book, I try to trace the history of higher education and people's attitudes towards it. And I think when it comes to women, um, you know, the way you're talking about the way he eroticized black people, partly what happens when that eroticization happens is you know, a lack of understanding or appreciation for the interiority of black people. And that's really what I focus on here is you know, looking at this literature on education, you see an expression of the black interior in a way that you don't see in any other literary forms in America at least. I guess the only thing I could think of where Whitman does demonstrate any even attempted awareness of what you just call black interiority is in some of the passages where he describes uh, runaway slaves and the terror that they would experience. Yeah. Um, Whitman's get has been given some credit for being the first white poet to speak from the position or speak with the voice of a of a black slave. Um, white white scholars have praised Whitman for that. Um, yeah. I guess that's, that's the closest I can think of for him. Doing, it's obviously insufficient. A scholarly question I have, is there any evidence that he actually encountered a um, runaway enslaved person? Because I've taught that, you know, people, my students just talk about it as matter of factly, you know, yeah, Whitman tended to this runaway slave in his house. I'm like, well, that's a sort of a character yeah. in the poem and not necessarily him. But is there any evidence that that was something that he had experienced? I don't know. He yeah, didn't. I think so. He wasn't a part of the Underground Railroad in any active way that I'm aware of. Yeah. There, is, there are some stories going back to his youth about um, growing up around slaves when slavery was legal. Um, when he, and his, like, when he was very, very young on the Whitman house on Long Island that supposedly there were slaves around or, or recently freed slaves around, people who had at one time been slaves. Um, but as far as runaway slaves, that is, I think, a fiction. Okay. Um, like many of the things in Leaves of Grass, he derived it from newspaper accounts, which he he would steal phrases from to collage together his poems. Yeah. Um, and so, I have to give a shout out to your book, Collage of Myself, um, for people who, haven't, who aren't familiar with it. It's a really great uh, interpretation of how Whitman worked as a collage artist, basically, before collage was even a thing, you know? Thanks. I appreciate that. I, I um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of proud of that book and, and hoping it uh, continues to influence people. But I also feel a little bit embarrassed by it now in the sense that I, um, I don't know, I wish somehow I could have made that book more and more socially engaged and less just so text, text, text. I, I'm hoping that with my next book, I can, I can look out at the world a little more and, and offer some criticism as well as some just textual analysis. But um, I, I feel like I want to just do more, you know, be more socially engaged in my work as a scholar. It's, it's something that this movement has impressed upon me personally anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for you agreeing to do this talk. So I, I understand that we're getting some questions in YouTube about how we would, how we recommend teaching Whitman in relationship to race. And I know you, you, you still choose to continue to teach Whitman. Um, and so I'd like to throw that question to you. How do you, how do you handle this in the classroom? How do you handle these concerns? Um, you know, sometimes it's interesting. I've taught Whitman in my composition classes where, you know, those are like first year writing classes and we just, you know, there's, a, there's limitations with how deep you can get into these things. You know, I teach at a teaching intensive institution, by the way, you know, um, so I, we do a lot of classes like, you know, introduction to writing or introdu introduction to composition uh, classes for first year students where they're really not that interested in this in all the scholarly uh, conversations. Um, I do teach some American literature classes where we can get a little deeper into these things. And I, you know, like to bring it up front. That's the way I deal with it is to, you know, talk about it up front. You know, this was someone who we're going to be reading who, you know, there's a history of him uh, making racist comments about black people and we're going to deal with that. Um, in the same way that when I approach a text where there's depictions of sexual assault, for instance, um, that's not something I want my students to be blindsided by, in, you know, halfway through the semester when we read it. So, you know, we can make fun of trigger warnings um, and, and you can call it that if you want to. Uh, but that's something I try to do in my class when I know that there's going to be, you know, um, contentious conversations happening. Um, and certainly when I teach American literature, you know, we're going to be talking about slavery. We're going to talk about racism. So there, there are going to be uh, moments where you're going to have to, you know, see some racist terms and we're going to talk about issues that might be very sensitive. Um, and, you know, I've had, you know, had some, some conflicts with students over these things before. Uh, so that happens. But I think it's important. I, they want to, I think it's important just to contextualize that from the beginning, um, that these are, these are conversations that we're going to have uh, so that they're not just taken aback when we, when we get into uh, some of the racist language that you might come across if you're reading more about Whitman. Sure. Yeah. Are there writers that you, who you have at one time appreciated and maybe taught who, who, when you learned about their racist or other kinds of bigoted views that you just said enough? Like for me personally, I, when I found out about, the full scope of Ezra Pound's anti-Semitism and his his views on fascism, I I I dumped him. You know, I, I haven't read him or taught him for you know 20, 20 years, I think, or something like that. Um, are there writers like that for you? It sounds like Whitman hasn't hasn't been you know thrown off the boat yet. Um, but are there other writers that that's happened to you just like too much? You know, it's funny. You mentioned one of the artists who I mentioned in that essay was Kanye. Uh, so that's somebody who I don't mess with anymore. <laughs> Speaking of somebody who's like very, you know, full of himself, I think in some ways he is kind of a, a modern day Whitman, you know, I celebrate myself sort of guy. Um, but, you know, hanging out with Trump and all the, you know, MAGA hat stuff and, you know, this whole like cult thing that he's trying to do now, I just, I don't really rock with him too much anymore. So, I think yeah. I saw that phrase cancel Kanye on, on somewhere on the news recently. 
Yeah. Um, it's funny. Yeah. I, I, you know, one, another writer who that came up for, for me was HP Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, I, I hadn't read him since I was a kid and I just remembered tentacle monsters and stuff. <laughs> I know he was like super popular with horror fans and things like that. So I was teaching this class called, uh, myth and magic in American literature. And I threw his, uh, the horror at Red Hook, his story on that. And, and I was just appalled by how racist it was. You know, all these like tribal black people like summoning demons to take revenge on the white world. Mm -hmm. Just explicitly white supremacist and totally there in the work. You know, not like Whitman's journalism hidden back here in the end. It's right in your face yeah. uh, in each story. And I was embarrassed that I, I honestly, to tell you the truth, I, I, hadn't, I didn't reread the story before I taught it. And I still am embarrassed about that to this day. I feel like that was one of my big failings as a teacher. Yeah. So I, I've thrown him out too. Uh, there are levels to this, you know. I mean, that, that you know, Lovecraft. Some of the stuff, as you said, it's just explicit. And I know there's been a lot of uh, controversy over that. Like the World Fantasy Awards, I think was uh, where the they had a sculpture of him was the uh, the award, and they some people, uh, you know, criticized them for keeping that statue as the as the award. Right. Um, so I mean, that's that's. Again, that's, that's very different from someone like Whitman, where there's a few things he said that are a little bit problematic. And somebody like Lovecraft, who's just, you know, just straight up, like horrible racism. Don't even get into his journals. I actually did more research. And he's, he at one point um, referred to Hitler as his boy. Yeah. Um, and he was strong. Yeah, I know that about him. Explicitly calling for the, to, you know, death to Jews, things like that. Um, anyways, like, yeah. And then, of course, then he also like wrote 100 years after Whitman. You would think that maybe he would have learned something by then, but I guess not. Um, all right. Well, I'm wondering if people have more questions for us now. I wanted to, we were told to leave 15 minutes yeah. to Q at the end of the talk. So maybe this would be a good time to turn to our YouTube audience and see if there are things on people's mind. Maybe, uh, maybe if Karen wants to join us again. I am delighted to do it. Thank you both, Lavelle and Matt, for an incredible conversation. This has been generous and focused and centered. And I feel like I wanted to keep going. We promised we would we would end at 7 p.m. And actually, Lavelle, I can't believe how kind of focused you are with the baby in the house now. <laughs> Congratulations again on the new arrival in your home. Thank you. Yeah, he's in the other room. So he's, uh, he's, he's been quiet so far. <laughs> Amazing. Um, there are some questions and you know what, I'm going to be really selfish and ask one of my own. Is that okay, guys? Yeah. Uh, Lavelle, I, maybe you've heard about this too. Uh, Matt and the Whitman Initiative, we've been actively engaged in a conversation about the, um, the move to remove a Whitman statue on the Camden campus of Rutgers University. Do you know anything about that? Well, I learned about it from the advertisement for uh, Ed Folsom's talk, and he mentioned it in the talk. So, um, you know, that was really my first time hearing any details about it. Uh, yeah. So there is a petition up on change.org with about 3,000 signatures. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at it right now. You know, uh, someone at Rutgers put this up and it, it begins, we are calling for the removal of the Walt Whitman statue, which stands tall in the middle of our campus. Rutgers Camden has been making efforts recently to remove symbols around our campus, which continue to perpetuate a racist past. 
I believe that the statue of Walt Whitman glorifies a man who we should not hold such a place of honor on our campus. Our school encourages inclus inclusion, diversity, and equity, while Whitman stood for none of those things. He instead stood for white supremacy and racism against Black and Indigenous Americans. So I'm bringing this up because uh, you both spoke so eloquently about Whitman and the body. This, of course, ties in with the body as well and and with, in general, kind of approaching Whitman's racism. What, what do we do with this statue? Do either of you have a, a word to say about that? Well, you know, my thing, I in the article, I, I tried to strike a balance where I didn't refute what like Timothy McNair said, also cited C.A. Conrad's piece, and I didn't refute that either. You know, C.A. Conrad basically said that they weren't gonna read Whitman's poetry anymore. Um, and I respect that. And, you know, I respect folks who uh, decided that they wanted to remove this, this statue uh, from there. I don't necessarily think that that statement that Whitman, you know, only stood for white supremacy, or I can't remember the exact phrasing of it. Uh, the last part of that statement, I'm just like, I don't know if that's really accurate. And maybe if there was a conversation about his work, uh, people might choose differently. Um, but, you know, this is a moment of reckoning. And, uh, you know, some of our treasured uh, symbols are going to have to change. So, you know, maybe this is one of those moments where, you know, if the students uh, on the campus are, are, you know, organized about it, uh, maybe they should. Yeah. I pretty much agree with Lavelle. Um, I'm not particularly concerned about the removal of the statue. Um, Camden is a highly African-American community. It may not be the right statue for them. Um, I think every community should decide for themselves their own standards about what's appropriate to, to maintain in public spaces. Uh, also like Lavelle, I'm, I'm a little more concerned about the statement and the way it's been described, the way Whitman's vision has been described than the statue removal itself. Um, because Whitman stood for a lot of things. And if you, for me, when you look to what somebody stood for, you look at their published work not their, what they wrote and erased in their journals or what somebody dug up from an obscure piece of anonymous journalism. Um, from that point of view, Whitman stood for a, a kind of liberating idea of democratic equality. That was utopian and um, impossible, but kind of a beautiful vision. And that was has inspired many people and still does. And it's important to have, you know, statues uh, in our public sphere that are representative of the diversity of our of the of the people. You know, um, that reminded me of the issue in New York, where there are only five statues of historic women in New York City, in all of New York City. Um, and this is like, okay, if these statues are meant to represent history, that's not a very representative view of history. Uh, so, so yeah, I think our our, our public uh, celebrations, I think, are should be questioned and we should be thinking about ways to um, make our, our public infrastructure more uh, representative of the diversity of our people. Wonderful, thank you both. You know, Whitman himself wrote against monuments in Specimen Days. Uh, I have it right in front of me. He, uh, in, this, in this short section called Monuments, the Past and Present, he wrote, I am not sure but the day for conventional monuments, statues, memorials, etc., has passed away and that they are henceforth superfluous and vulgar. So I wonder if Walt himself would have, uh, you know, condoned the, 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 the erection of these statues. Um, 
but thank you for that. I wanna to turn to some of the questions that are out there. We have a number of questions appearing in the chat and I'm gonna encourage people to keep on putting them in there because we have about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Question goes to you, Lavelle. Mm -hmm. Fascinated by the, insect, the insights re Whitman's attraction to the black body and his dehumanizing perspective re black people. And she's curious what theories you're using next to that issue. Um, hi, Maureen. I know Maureen from the Graduate Center. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was a student of Robert Refar at the Graduate Center. Um, he's written quite a bit about race and sexuality in his work, um, Black Gay Man, and um, Once You Go Black, uh, got Choice, Desire, and uh, The Black American. So, um, you know, Refar's work on race and sexuality is something I'm thinking about. Um, you know, Devon Somerville squaring the color line um, is another work that I think of. Uh, Roderick Ferguson's um, Aberrations in Black, where he talks about, you know, sociology and the construction of um, Blackness in the Black family in sociological thinking. Uh, so these are some of the, the books that I kind of are, are thinking about when it comes to uh, the way that um, Black people are, are often viewed as sexually different um, by white supremacist thinking. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah, there are suggestions in his writings that he may have even had a Black lover. Matt, I, I don't know if you ever go there in your writing, but I know some people kind of interpret the sleepers that way with darkness, you are gentler than my lover and so forth. Um, but thank you so much, Lavelle. I'm looking at the other questions and we've got one from tr our own Tristan. Um, and this one probably goes more to you, Matt, but I, I think both of you could could maybe try it out. Do you think the repression that Whitman felt finally broke him and he finally became more racist when he realized that he wouldn't find liberation for his sexuality? Could it be possible that he was projecting his pain onto others like him who were looked at as a degenerate in the eyes of society? This way he could have some sort of power in society. It's an interesting idea, but I don't see any real evidence for it in the notebooks. Um, it's it's kind of it's pretty speculative. I wouldn't I wouldn't excuse Whitman's racist statements on that. I do think there's a connection between his erotic outlook toward other men and uh, the failure of that outlook and his increasing racism. But I'm not sure I would put it in quite the I guess sort of pseudo Freudian way that that Tristan did there. I, I don't know if it's directly related to repression and projection and in that, but I would say that as his as he became less sort of sexually alive as a man, um, I think his ability to feel compassion for black men decreased, and there is something there, but I'm not sure I would put it in the kind of Freudian terms that that that's, that statement did. What, what do you think, Lavelle? I think in uh, a sort of historical perspective on his late you know, life uh, racism is, you know, post-Civil War America and um, the process of reconstruction. And, you know, the, the idea of recon reconciling um, the South and the North and that reconciliation really happened around like white supremacy. And so I think um, in some ways I, I, I wonder, and, you know, as women scholars, maybe you can you know, check me and let me know whether that's accurate or not. But I think some, you know, the, the political environment of that time um, and attitudes about black people during the post-Civil War era um, as emancipation actually took hold. And when you started to see black people participating um, in the nation, there's this real backlash and a lot of, um, you know, scientific racism um, becomes very prevalent. 
uh, as a justification for why the color line needs to remain. Um, if they were going to let them run around free, um, we need to make sure that they're contained because you know they are inferior, and here are the reasons why. So I think it was just the the racial thinking of his time um, that influenced uh, some of the things that he might have said later in his life. But that's just a guess. Again, you know, having since you've been in the notebooks, maybe you could corroborate whether that's accurate. I share that guess. Uh, in particular, the part that I share is the increasing influence on uh, scientific or pseudo-scientific racial theories that position um, the white uh, body as at the apex of human development. Um, these variants of social Darwinism. Um, uh, Spencer, Herbert Spencer, the inventor of social Darwinism was a contemporary of Whitman's roughly the same era. Whitman certainly encountered his work. And he was one of the most, I guess you could say trendy. It was like a fad almost for social Darwinism. And some people, some of these people that got into it are people that you would expect to buy into racist views, but others you're really kind of disappointed at how thoroughly they bought into this thoroughly racist outlook, which uh, basically says that eventually all black people will either die off or become assimilated. And, they, and that's viewed as a positive development, yeah. explicitly as a positive development. So there is, this is a violent uh, racist ideology. There's no excusing it. It can also be tied directly to the Holocaust. Um, it's been misused over the, over the decades in countless ways. And it's, I think, one of the most destructive concepts to take hold, to take hold of the white intellectual imagination in the last few centuries. And Whitman bought into it too. And he deserves all the blame for that. Yeah. Thank you both for that. Very powerful. I'm looking at a question that probably ties in with what you, how you are talking right now. And this comes from Tanika Martin, who happens to be a Whitman student of mine from, from way back, but still following all things Whitman. And she asks, isn't it important to consider Whitman in the context of his time, not our time? And this reminds me of now the discussions of presentism, right? Uh, just uh, any thoughts on this? And this might well be our last question, guys. We've, we're at 6.56, so final words on that? Well, I think if that's the last question, it's a good one to end on because I think that's really what's at stake here. Um, and I, you know, hopefully over this conversation, we've tried to contextualize uh, Whitman's comments in his own time just as we were talking about some of the um, ideas about race that were circulating um, in his own time as well. Um, but we, we do read these you know, authors in our own time as well, right? Um, you know, the 200th anniversary fell during the Trump administration. That was kind of something that I was grappling with in that article. You know, there's this moment of resurgent white nationalism. And so we have to uh, consider um, why we, are willing to make excuses uh, for white supremacy when it pops up in these writers' writing, you know, particularly at a moment like this. Uh, so, yeah, so yes, you do have to contextualize the writing in its own time. Um, but also, there were other people in that time who were not racist. Um, you know, there were also other people there who saw the humanity of black people. So, you know, it, it isn't when some people make these comments, um, they're suggesting that everybody was a white supremacist in that moment, and that's just simply not true. Um, so. The other thing I'll say about it is that I think there is a side of this that uh, should encourage some humility in us and thinking about what are some of the things that we're contributing to or what are some of the things that we're ignoring in our own time 
that people in the future uh, might look at us and say, why didn't you do something about that thing that was happening? Or why did you have those views about the, the people um, that you had those views about? I love that. And the only thing I want to add to it is that I think it needs to be a constant ongoing negotiation. Mm -hmm. We can't get comfortable in our position about what history is teaching us that we need to keep checking in and keep questioning our, our canonical, our, the authors we choose to keep teaching and, and their relationship to history. We're not going to solve the problem. Yeah, uh, I, lo I love everything Lavelle said just there. It's, a, I think, a great way to end the talk. Wow, thank you both for for just straight shooting answers. Bad word to use for Walt Whitman, I suppose, but there, there goes uh, a, a wonderfully rich conversation that I hope uh, a lot of us get to revisit uh, since we're going to install this on the Walt Whitman Initiative YouTube channel. Um, any final words, guys? Check in in a, in a week for uh, Jesse, for your and Jesse's talk, um, Walt Whitman's New York. It's going to be a fascinating talk and I hope everybody comes back. I'll be there and um, looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for doing this and I am looking forward to that as well. Definitely, I'll be there. Uh, just one other thing, if anybody would like to sign our petition to try to save the last remaining Walt Whitman house on 99 Ryerson, um, please visit the Walt Whitman Initiative's website. Just do a Google search for Walt Whitman Initiative and you can find links to the petition through our main page. We're trying to save the last remaining house that Whitman lived in in Brooklyn. Okay, Matt and Lavelle, thank you so much. Also a shout out again to Jesse Mirandi behind the scenes there and Tristan Pullen. They've made it work and thus ends our first ever uh, speak, speaker series talk and I think it was fantastic. You guys put the conversation in conversation. That was a word that was often repeated here and I feel like keeping the conversation open is kind of the big message that I'm getting from this. Sure. So thank you both. Hope to see you all. We'd like to put a bookmark in this as an ivory tower boiler room team. Thank you first so much to the Walt Whitman Initiative for our first ever joint collaboration together. Hopefully not the last one. I'm sure there will be many more future events and we're going to start doing more of these joint ventures with other institutions. So in June, we're going to have a collaboration with the Port Washington um, Library from Long Island, where I will be presenting a talk I had given to them last year for Pride Month. So you'll hear that. Um, hopefully soon we'll be doing a collaboration with the Walt Whitman Birthplace. And definitely there will be many more institutions that we join forces with. So please check out our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You can see Mary's new true crime blog that she's doing weekly. You can see all of our big think pieces where we talk about um, our writing process. And we have short content every week. I just came out with a discussion about Walt Whitman and how each member of the team is surrounded by Whitman's multitudes because we either grew up in New Jersey or Long Island. So please check that out. Follow us at Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room and follow us at Facebook, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, we will accept your request when you um, try to join the group with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and What's nice is all of the 
members of the group post their writing, um, what they're creatively working on, and there's so many enjoyable exchanges on there. Um, so without further ado, here is our finale music. Um, Michael O'Brien and Emily O'Brien's Blackberry Blossom. We hope you all are staying well out there. Bye, everyone. Thank you. 